listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, surgically enhancing my ears, Wade, in preparation for this week's show. You know, Kevin, I've been thinking about it, and I really believe our episode this week is going to soar. It turns out that the magic was within us all along. We are, (laughs) of course, going to be reviewing the latest movie from Disney in which they remake one of their beloved classics. That would be... Dumbo. But before that, I sit down with Cutter Calloway and then Craig Detweiler to talk about the new book they co-authored with Robert Johnston, Deep Focus, Film and Theology in Dialogue. It's three smarties and two Dumbos on this episode, episode 194 of Seeing and Believing. We are here with episode 194 of Seeing and Believing. And Kevin, this episode begins a little bit differently. We had a chance, I had a chance to sit down and talk to Cutter Calloway. And then later we're joined by Craig Detweiler about their book, Deep Focus. They co-authored that with Robert Johnston. And we, we talk to authors periodically on the show and I, I think sometimes it's easy to believe, oh, if you talk to an author, you have to say, oh, I think your book is great. But as I'm working through this book, Deep Focus, I think it's really good. And I was excited to have this conversation. Yeah, I was I was unfortunately not able to sit down for the conversation with you guys, but I have to echo you on the uh, props for the book itself. I'm also reading, working my way through it as well. And I find that, uh, the three authors, the way they, they explore and probe at what it means to watch a film as a Christian and sort of bring that into the viewing experience is really well articulated. And I really can't wait to, you know, finish it up and, you know, maybe even introduce some of my friends to it. I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah. And there's good stuff in this interview, listeners. I chat with Cutter Calloway for a short period of time, and then we are also joined by Craig Detweiler. It's a good conversation. We'd love to hear your feedback. If you have any questions, maybe for us or for the authors about what we talk about in this interview, we would love to hear from you at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Without further ado, here's our interview. Well, on this episode of Seeing and Believing, I am joined by a very special guest, Cutter Calloway. Cutter Calloway is the Assistant Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's the author of Watching TV Religiously and God in the Movies. Dr. Calloway, it's really great to have you on. And I I just, I named two of your books. You have so many books out there. And you also told me you released a book today. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, we uh, had it just in a serendipitous moment. Uh, another book called The Aesthetics of Atheism came out uh, today. So fun stuff. That's really cool. I, I I saw it on Amazon today and I didn't have a chance to look at it, but the name itself <laughs> intrigues me. So we're going to talk about another book that you recently released. It's called Deep Focus, Film and Theology and Dialogue. And you wrote this with Robert Johnston and Craig Detweiler. In Deep Focus, you guide the Christian moviegoer 
into a theological conversation with movies in an up-to-date, readable introduction to Christian theology and film, Deep Focus helps film lovers not only watch movies critically and theologically, but also see beneath the surface of their own moving images. I've been going through the book, and I really do enjoy it so far. So I I guess I want to just begin by asking you, what made you and your team write this book? Why did you want to write this book? And and what do you hope this book accomplishes? Yeah. Well, you know, we wrote it in part because um, both Craig and I uh, studied with Rob. And uh, he, you know, it's it's very... (laughs) very rare in life that you can say, you know, you know, the person who wrote the book on something. Um, but we did in this case with uh, Rob Johnson, he wrote a, a book a number of years ago, uh, real spirituality, yeah. R-E-E-L, not R-E-A-L, um, and had a second edition of that. And part of what we were thinking uh, through was all the things that had changed since this second edition of his book, um, whether that has to do with just sort of different shifts within uh, Western culture, uh, within popular culture in particular, and within film culture, but then also some of the the things that have changed in terms of like technological innovations, the distribution networks, the the various ways that we as as filmgoers consume um, our movies, and even the blurred lines between what even a movie is, right? Like it, if it releases on Netflix and is streamable, or if it's uh, episodic, is it still, a, you know, all those questions came up. Um, but the undergirding sort of uh, uh, thing that compelled us to continue to write and to say this this is a a series or this is a, a conversation that we need to keep having is that that most people or not most people many people um, still go to movies in such a way that they might describe as spiritual or transcendent mm-hmm. or divine even and that common thread, whether you are a Christian, a a theist or not, um, is something that's really remarkable about contemporary culture that, that whether it's, you know, film is one uh, instance of this, but there's others, uh, but film seems to be one of those unique places um, that people talk in terms of spirituality, even if they themselves uh, are not people of faith. And so that phenomenon uh, drives myself, uh, Rob and Craig all to say, well, God must be up to something there. <laughs> what is it? Uh, and and how might we learn something for our own individual sort of spirituality and discipleship? But then how might we also participate, collaborate with what the Spirit of God is up to um, in movies? Yeah, and I like that you mentioned real spirituality because that became one of those leading textbooks in the field of Christian theology and film. And what you do here is is take Actually, I guess the better way is you build on that while taking into account that film has changed over the years. And you mentioned Netflix and streaming. I appreciate the chapter in the book where you detail the history of Hollywood's unsteady relationship (laughs) with the church. It's a great chapter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What do you think that relationship looks like today? And then what do you wish it looked like today? Well, you know, there's maybe two sides of, of an answer to that question. And in some part, you know, as with any of these, uh, the questions you ask, I'll, I'll try to put my Rob hat or my Craig hat on at different times. Um, but yeah. I will take full responsibility for any misstatements I make. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, but, but my sense is there's, 
a couple things. One is, let's say post uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion, mm-hmm. um, uh, the the industry, quote unquote, right? The, the the film industry really woke up to this fact that oh wow, there's this whole group of people who identify as Christians, specifically in the U.S., that will consume a specific kind of film, right? A, a particular kind of of movie they're attracted to. And, you know, the passion made gobs of money, uh, hand over fist. And so there was this, there's been this interesting shift of, of Hollywood trying to, to target, uh, to this sort of niche audience. Um, what's interesting there is it's not always been successful. <laughs> um, I still, uh, interact with and, and sort of advise various studios, networks, um, and and it's really interesting to me how confused they are about who this group of people are. <laughs> um, and and but at the same time, here's the sort of other side of the equation is I, too, am confused about who these people are at times. Hmm. Um, and that and that is, I think, the other thing that's changed is that the the sort of let's call it a Christian subculture within the U.S., um, is a little bit has a sort of like a split consciousness. On the one hand, um, you will hear these vocal cries for if you just made you know movies that Christians love, we would go see them. Or if only you know whatever the criteria is, better representations of of people of faith or um, biblical movies or whatnot. But time and time again, Hollywood will say, "Oh, okay, here you go then," um, and and then that'll be the next film that all the Christians apparently boycott. Uh, and have great, you know, deep problems or whatever, you know. So, and then um, they'll go and they will book theaters in mass for these films that are created by this sort of cottage industry of Christian filmmakers. Um, and they're incredibly profitable uh, in terms of, of a return on investment. Um, and because of that, the, the Christian community, the church, seems to have um, this, this sense that, Either we are being more culturally uh, influential, or we're spreading the gospel, or you know we get these sort of delusions of grandeur. And in fact, what's happened is a bunch of Christians have bought tickets to a movie that was made by Christians about Christians, <laughs> and yeah. and nobody else cares, right? So so it's it, the the shift that I've seen is is that like, that that even though it's been a good 10, 15, maybe even twenty years where both Hollywood and the church um, are more aware of each other. I'm not sure if quite yet either, let's call them communities, um, has come to like the, a deeper understanding um, of of what the other desires, what the other would pay by, you know, uh, pay money for a ticket for, um, et cetera. At the same time, there are, I think, uh, since, you know, let's say 1999, year 2000, my co-author Craig wrote a book, called Matrix of Meanings a number of years ago and mm-hmm. and called out 1999 as like the year that changed movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and and since then, there has been, I think, a continual uh, uh, production of films that are tapping into what I would call sort of this deep-lived spirituality. And, and that runs the gamut from, you know, your art house film all the way to um, the Avengers uh, series, right? I mean, these are now... Uh, big tent movies making hundreds of millions of dollars. And I mean, I personally am in tears at the end of Captain America Civil War because it, <laughs> it's, you know, 
it's tapping into this this sort of sense of we we are in a culture right now where brother against brother, friend against friends um, is at odds with each other, and we feel like um, we have to fight it out. We can't walk away from this conflict um, in communion. And I just go, man, that's that's really getting at something deep and profound about uh, our cultural consciousness. And that's an Avengers, you know, it's a superhero movie. So. Yeah. I think that's the other thing that's that's changed um, in the in the recent past. Um, that there's just more of that. It's interesting too that you mentioned '99, and then you mentioned the Passion of the Christ. We just reviewed Passion, the Passion of the Christ for mm, its yeah. 10 year anniversary, which feels oh, yeah. it's just crazy. But yeah, you look yeah. at '99, you look at like The Matrix, you look at Fight Club, and yeah. these movies that are that are tapping into something deeply spiritual, uh, but at the same time they. They are unusual, or they are yeah. films that that Christians might not see. And then you look at something like Scorsese's Silence, yeah, a yeah. film that not many people see or saw, a film that we talked about, but is is definitely definitely rich there. So in your book, you do quote director George Miller, and he says this: "I believe cinema is now the most powerful secular religion." And people gather in cinemas to experience things collectively the way they once did in church. The cinema storytellers have become the new priests. They're doing a lot of the work of our religious institutions, which have so concretized the metaphors in their stories, taken so much of the poetry, mystery, and mysticism out of religious belief that people look for other places to question their spirituality. So there's a lot kind of going on there. Do you think Christian theology, as Miller suggests, has become overly rationalized to the to the detriment of this life transforming power of its original story? You know, I think the answer is both yes and no. Um, I think in terms of our public presence, um, the public, uh, maybe even persona of Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity and in the U.S., um, I think it's a very fair assessment um, uh, that that the way that we articulate what it means to be a person of faith, what it means to care about um, society, what it means to, to live ethically or whatever it is, um, it seems to, I think, most hearers, most listeners, as if it's this pure you know, rational propositional form of, of assent to some set of doctrines. Right. Um, and those become unyielding and unforgiving. And so we, we end up, um, (laughs) I'm working on a book right now, uh, called uh, apologetics as apology. Mm. And, and, and part of what I'm, I'm getting at in that book is to say, We've we become we you know apologetics used to be this this defense of the faith, but really it was providing um, thoughtful, rational reasons for people who were already believers to know that their belief wasn't childish and immature and delusional, right? But now it's shifted into this thing where we're defending things that are indefensible <laughs> um, because we have concretized or. Um, or, or totalized these sort of theoretical concepts. Uh, at the same time, I know individually gobs of Christians, right? That their lived theology, their lived way of, of being, their spirituality, if you will, in fact, still is narrative. It still is poetic. It still is 
um, profoundly affective and emotional. And, and so the, that comment, that quote, um, I think holds not just for broader society, but for people who are in the church. We see you know, numbers of people sort of leaving the church in droves. And I think it's not because they're abandoning their faith in God. It's because they are also seeking a, a community, a narrative, uh, a poetry that connects more deeply with their on-the-ground experience of Christian faith. And so um, it's, it's an interesting time because, uh, again, it's that what, what are we uh, presenting uh, in our sort of public face and what connects to sort of the, the lived reality? And that's another maybe reason as to why we wrote this book is because we also want to connect for the Christian to say, <laughs> I, I have another book on TV as well, and I teach a class on that. And in a similar way, I have students that will come out of this. This is a you know, graduate school in a seminary context. And one of the biggest takeaways is they go, oh, I guess I don't have to feel bad for enjoying TV. <laughs> and, I, and I go, of course. And the same could be said for film. Like, like, oh, I don't have to feel bad for for going into this fil- film and being spiritually enlivened, right? To, to, to mm. realize that the, the poetry captivated me, the narrative, the story brought me up. And that's part and parcel of what it means to be a human how God created us, and in fact, the way that God so often speaks to us, and for us to convince Christians that that's okay, and we can give in to that experience, um, really is something I think that we hope uh, comes out of this book, um, beyond simply saying, yes, uh, the broader society, too, is experiencing something spiritual, when, when in the past they might have seen that happening in a church. No, those are really good words, and I'm excited about extending this conversation. Listeners, we're going to go to a break, and we're going to also be joined when we come back by Craig Detweiler. He's also a co-author on the book, so we'll get you all two together, and we'll continue this. We'll be back in just a moment. So we are back with our interview. We are joined uh, still by Cutter Calloway. We're also joined in this segment by Craig Detweiler. He is a producer, a writer. He's the former president of the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. His previous books include I Gods, Selfies, and Cutter mentioned a previous one, A Matrix of Meanings. Craig, thank you for joining us today. I'm really excited to get you on this side of the conversation. Yes, yes, yes. So I'm glad to, to uh, tune in and be a part of things, please. Yeah, I, I, I've really enjoyed the book so far. You write at one place, uh, you say, a variety of lenses continue to be used by the church and its members to watch cinema. Christians, both individually and institutionally at times, either one, preach avoidance, two, express caution, three, enter into dialogue, Four, appropriate uh, appropriate insight, or five, are surprised by God's presence. I wanted to talk to you about that. Should Christians permanently stay at one of these five responses? How do you see that working in the life of the individual Christian and in the church? Well, the reason we talk about these five uh, streams of, of faith and responses to culture, uh, we really took um, H. Richard Niebuhr's concepts and and Rob Johnston our co-author is so steeped in this that he he helped us understand how the church and all of us as individuals I think vacillate sometimes we're in avoidance where we say no I can't see that other times we're like eh, I'll be cautious I'm going to watch out and be careful 
Um, and, and then at other times we say, you know what, I want to get into dialogue. I want to see this film because people are talking about it. People are interested in it. Um, I think where we kind of land uh, in a way that maybe even surprises ourselves is this notion of, of more like divine encounter, that oftentimes we may not even be looking uh, for the spirit to move us in a certain kind of way, and we find ourselves surprised, you know, that we mm -hmm. didn't expect it, mm -hmm. and then suddenly, wow, what is this? Why am I crying? Um, why do I feel strangely moved? You know, it's sort of that, like John Wesley moment, right, where your heart is strangely warmed. You know, what is that, and uh, where does that come from? So that's that movement of the spirit. No, I, I I really appreciate that, and and really just the push to think deeper about film, and that's what we try to do with the podcast. Before we kind of move on in the show, I wanna I wanna ask you some questions that are in the book. They are discussion questions, but as I was reading them, I thought I would love to ask the authors these same questions. So here's the first one, and I'd love for both of y'all to hop in on on this and each give me your answer. Uh, but here's the first one. Can you give an example of a time the spirit spoke to you through a film? Or can you describe a movie-watching event where your spirit was deeply moved and your life transformed? Oh. I got you. How about you, Cutter? Yeah. Why don't you go first? <laughs> uh, I think for me... Um, you know, there's such an there, tree of life is an epic film of yeah. just such scale and um, beauty, and and so there's moments of just transcendence throughout where you're just suddenly struck by the play of light or the um, kind of the wonder that is is throughout this amazing epic Terrence Malick film. But I, I don't want to give away too much to say that at the end of the film there is a gathering at the river where you have people who've been in grief, people who've suffered loss, and they gather in this place that feels a little bit like um, a heavenly vision, a, a river of life. And it's just a beautiful healing moment. And for me, um, I'm a person who had, had lost my sister in a car wreck. She was mm. a college student at the time. And I mean, there was no chance to to reconcile with her, to say goodbye, to have any kind of meaningful ending. And when I saw that kind of ending and that reconciliation and that heavenly um, reunion happening in Tree of Life, I mean, I just broke down and it just was this beautiful moment of possibility of saying, is that what it's going to be like? Is that possible? And can I experience that with with my own sister? And, and can the grief that I've carried be healed in this other side, um, you know, in, at this at this holy river, at this holy gathering. Um, so Tree of Life for me was deeply healing and uh, restorative. Yeah, and it's one of those movies, I, I don't know if I am allowed to talk about it on the podcast anymore because we've talked about it so much. We reviewed <laughs> it last year when it uh, the Criterion release. But uh, no, it's, it's great to hear that and that personal experience. Cutter, what about you? Well, I mean, kind of like Craig, there's so many to choose from. Maybe I'll do a um, a, a less life-giving one, um, a critical one. That, and this is semi-recently, but I've, I, I mean, my love of movies started with Star Wars. I mean, I'm not, you know, unique in that. I didn't. I wish it was like Fellini or something, but it's not. <laughs> yeah, um, no, me too. <laughs> and uh, but I, I then have been rewatching it. Uh, my uh, eight-year-old daughter is the oldest of our three kids. 
we're now watching the, through it together. Um, and it's amazing to watch her experience it, um, especially at the end of Empire Strikes Back. And it was going to be a bit before we got Return of the Jedi. And she was just like, didn't know what to do with herself with how they leave it. <laughs> so, I mean, like. Um, and so there, there's that sense of where um, this movie, sort of this shared experience, um, brings something to the film that is new or different or is, adds like a different sort of element that my history with that film um, wouldn't have had before. She's there watching it with me. Um, but then what was interesting is um, I'm also uh, that book I was telling you about, uh, Apologetics is Apology. One of the chapters is is called. Um, we are the empire. And I think to answer your question of what, how has maybe the spirit or how has God spoken directly to me? Um, I'm actually going to use this as the example. And that is nobody watches star Wars and identifies with Palpatine, right? Like mm. <laughs> nobody, mm-hmm. nobody's like, yeah, that, that's me. You know, I'm, you know, and, um, as, and I think in terms of, you know, our earlier, uh, conversation about, uh, sort of Christian engagement with Hollywood and the world and culture and stuff. Um, you get all this conversation right now about the church in America being in exile. Um, the church being, you know, like the sort of downtrodden outsider and the powers that be the culture quote unquote is lost and godless and whatever. And we've got to sort of hunker down and figure out how to live. And pretty clearly this last time I was watching, uh, you know, the original episodes four, five, and six with my daughter. Um, I thought pretty clearly God was saying, you are the empire. Um, Mm. you, you are Israel at the height of its gluttonous worst. Um, and you being not just me individually, but, uh, you American Christians need to (laughs) identify with the right part of the story and the right people in the story and you need to do some real hard work of figuring out what does it mean when you're the people who have been in charge and been in power and have been making, you know, your, your worship now is, is a stench in God's nose. How do you move forward? And the history of our people is not very good. <laughs> it doesn't look good. Um, mm-hmm. They don't listen to the prophets. They don't listen to the outsiders tell them they're on a, on a bad path. But I, I really feel like that's what I got. Uh, and I've watched Star Wars a million times. And not until this last time was that a, a really, to me, sort of a pronounced um, element of my experience of watching the show. No, that's that's a that's a great example, and just the idea too of talking about how, from a from a national standpoint, are we the empire? There are references yeah. to to Vietnam, yeah. and then even yeah. in the Force Awakens to our wars in the yeah. Middle East. It's it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So my second question is this: it's it's kind of along those lines, but I feel like it goes back a little bit deeper. And uh, here goes: Do you have a truly moving picture you point back to and reflect on as a turning point in your life? Oh well, I, I don't want to give away too much of a reveal in, uh, <laughs> in deep focus, but. Uh, but yeah, some, I'm, I'm picking start, examples that aren't in there, Craig. You got to come up with new ones. Come on. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. That's true. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, anybody who's heard me <clears throat> speak, uh, you know, maybe uh, a college or a church kind of setting has perhaps heard me talk about uh, the film Raging Bull and how it arrived for me at a crucial moment where I was in kind of a self-destructive phase coming 
uh, towards the end of high school and had kind of ruined, uh, you know, relationships with others. And, and so this boxing story of Jake LaMotta and how he beat up his, his opponents and beat up his wife and beat up his brother and ended up all alone, that resonated with me. And it became this cautionary tale that was a big R-rated wake-up call. It was profane, it was violent, and it was scary. And it was the hard medicine that I needed, I think, uh, to invite me into this crawl that happens in the credits, right, where Scorsese fades the, the boxing story and, and, and over black it says, all I know is this, once I was blind, but now I can see. Hmm. So here was an invitation at the end of a two-hour, you know, kind of bloody, messy film. Here was an invitation to escape that blindness and pursue sight. And so for the Seeing and Believing podcast, right, it just it, – it, yeah. I had the same kind of experience. <laughs> yeah, and Cutter, kind of going along to what we were talking about earlier, not one of those films that churches will kind of buy out the theater to go see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't, that's funny. Yeah, the, the, that weirdness of that Hollywood doesn't understand the church still, um, but the church doesn't understand itself. So, uh, like, where, man, every Christian should see that film. Not all kids, of course, mm-hmm. um, but what a profound embodiment of the gospel. Um, and then Scorsese, uh, now, the movie you referenced earlier, uh, Making Silence, another movie that mm-hmm. the church did not go and see but should absolutely be required viewing um, for every missions organization, every missionary, every person who's ever struggled with what it means to be a person. I mean, like, um, here is one of our generation's best storytellers. And to to not uh, interact or at least be open to um, what he's bringing to the table is, I mean, again, back to riffing on We're the Empire, is, is to suggest that the Elijahs and the Ezekiels and all of those prophetic voices that came in the form of poetry uh, and their message was targeted to the people of God, to the covenant community. It's essentially to say, we don't want to hear what you have to say because we've got it figured out and your message is, mm. has no place here. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, it's it's in very interesting time that, that we've got um, Christians saying we want a certain thing. Um, and yet, even in saying that, I don't know if we know what it is we need, <laughs> even if we could say what we want. Yeah. And, and two, I think it goes back to uh, it always goes back to the question of, of, of sin and content and how far is too far. And what I tell yeah. people when they ask me, you know, do you really see the, those movies in theaters? And I say, well, you know, some there are some I don't see. But there is a difference between something making us feel uncomfortable and something yeah. causing us to sin. And that's really something we've got to dig into and figure out as we look at art. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's – Craig, do you want to go on that? I can – No, no. I No, I think that's – I think it's really well said, Wade. Um, yeah. And we just don't quite have that category figured out. <laughs> like we don't know how to receive prophetic messages. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's just not kind of in our wheelhouse, or we don't have quite have a muscle for it. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, so Craig and I co-teach, and Rob uh, comes out, and we basically have him teach, even though he's not getting paid for it, uh, a class uh, <laughs> at at the Sundance Film Festival every year. And um, a, a year or two ago, a student afterwards, um, I was just talking to, and she said, "Oh man, Cutter, I went and I I saw this film with my son, um, and my son's a you know millennial. I don't know, he's." 20 something. 
And she's like, I got to tell you, there's no way I would have ever watched that movie or been able to even endure it. I'm sitting in the theater with him. Had I not gone to Sundance and and had been desensitized? And I was like, wait, wait, hmm. did you hear what you just said? I go, <laughs> you, you just used the word desensitized in a in a life giving constructive way. I go, that's perfect. What what we need to develop is our capacity to I, I, I describe it in terms of being offended without taking offense. Um, and that that, man, we really don't know how to sit in the presence of things that might, yeah, uh, uh, you know, poke at our sort of sensitivities or preferences and still be an embodiment of God's kingdom in the world. And I just go back to like my, t- my time as a youth pastor, where I'd meet youth uh, group kids across the street from their high school at Starbucks. And I mean, talk about an R-rated NC-17 triple X <laughs> kind of environment. I mean, I can't tell you what these kids, these teenagers are saying at Starbucks after high school. Well, if I can't manage to literally just exist in that space with the the young people that I'm mentoring, um, how on earth are they going to exist in that space that they have to be in? And how are they going to actually, um, in any sense of the term, um, be the sort of salt and light of the earth? It's 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 sort of crazy making, um, but it is also why. Uh, and in, in the U.S. anyway, we've created this entire sort of parallel subcultural cottage industry of quote unquote acceptable media content um, because we simply th- this phrase of be in but not of the world is really just our excuse to not be in the world at all. Hmm. Um, and and that's kind of where we've gotten. And yet these movies keep inviting us back. Isn't that isn't hmm. that crazy? Like the, the filmmakers yeah. still I just got a, a link to to the new Mary Magdalene. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Yeah. You know, they're making Mary Magdalene. Um, they're literally making our movies, our stories, and and begging us to come and watch them. And <laughs> with Joaquin Phoenix as Jesus, Joaquin, yeah. it's like come on. And then on to Joker after that, right? Exactly. <laughs> no, you know, I, I'm reminded too of whenever I was a youth pastor, and so many of the kids in our area and in our youth group, they just loved Eminem, and it, this is off film and into music, and I just. At first, I was like, oh, you know, I know what's in his his music. And then I realized what it was about his music that drew those students to that and just fighting from the bottom and feeling like you, you've yeah. got to be successful or you're going to be stuck. And when I understood that and understood Eminem's art, it changed the way that I was able to interact with those students. And it was just it was a powerful experience for me. Yeah. Well, I think I think what we're talking about is how we we often rotate between, say, caution until we get nervous and then we kind of go back to avoidance. And yet the the, uh, the films are kind of keep keep pulling us into dialogue. And at some point, if we if we open ourselves up, we can get to this moment of divine encounter that, that can completely surprise and disarm us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's the kind of filters that we want to help people develop to get past maybe the categories that they're used to into uh, some possibilities of, you know, uh, how, how, how and why would I be listening to Eminem or going to the movies of Scorsese um, or going to see, you know, Mary Magdalene uh, featuring Joaquin Phoenix as, uh, as Jesus. You know, this is the, the wonder of the moment that we're in. 
Well, that's a that's a great way of, of putting it. And I think you you both have described some of the things we're getting out, Kevin and I getting at as we as we do this podcast. I want to thank both of y'all for coming on. This is a great conversation that I've I've just enjoyed having and I'm gonna enjoy listening to it again. And uh, I guess one more push for the for the book. Where can people get this book and how have you seen this book used in classrooms or churches? Well, you can get it anywhere fine books are sold. <laughs> uh, you know, your Amazons, your Baker.com, uh, uh, com. Craig, do you have a CraigDetweiler.com? You should. Um, I, I, um, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm more a Twitter, Instagram y. Twitter, that's right. <laughs> you know, um, but it's, it's actually just, it's so new. Um, I, we, we have sent out copies to, um, a number of uh, people who will be teaching uh, with this in their classroom. Um, we sort of test marketed it with uh, a colleague of ours uh, last year as we were writing it. Um, but it's actually, it's, it, it's just come out so recently. We, I don't have any stories yet of someone that's used it in the classroom. Craig, do you? Well, it's, it's rooted in, in Rob Johnston's groundbreaking yeah. work with real that's spirituality. Yeah. And so anybody who's enjoyed real spirituality and found it helpful um, this is, uh, you know, a fresh take, an extension of that. Um, it's yeah. using newer movies. I mean, we've got comments mm-hmm. in there on, you know, Crazy Rich Asians and Black Panther and Roma and things that, that Get out. Are, yeah. you know, just hit. hit. Uh, and, and so we're just trying to be as, as contemporary as possible. Awesome. Well, listeners, I would encourage you to definitely check out that book. We're going to be back in just a little bit. Kevin's going to join me. We're going to be reviewing the new Disney film, Dumbo. Don't go anywhere. When the sky, when the sky is opened, when we can see the words to the scripts we've been writing, could all of our souls slip out of our bodies without any great reckoning or dividing? interlude song this week is Alkana by Sean Thornton. We really appreciate all the listeners who take an opportunity to support our podcast. When you do that, you support conversations like the one we just had and the review coming up later on the show. We are happy to put this podcast together and it makes us even happier when people come alongside us and assist us in the journey. One way to support us is by going to our Patreon page, going to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. A lot of levels for support for donation. And Kevin, one of my favorites is the what can you buy for $5 level. It's it's really fantastic. A lot of great perks. And I did want to ask you that this week. I know we probably we just don't talk about it too much, but <laughs> what can our listeners buy for 5 bucks? 5 bucks would get you a plaster cast of Jeffrey Rush's nose. You know, I I've always wanted that because when 
I inevitably go back to Disney World and go on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. I could just put that on and jump off the ride and just chill. Watch the boats go by and no one would know the difference. It's It'd be great. Yeah, and surprisingly affordable too. You would think that obtaining an object like this would have entailed a certain level of risk that they'd be asking a little bit more for it. But apparently Jeffrey Rush is himself a pretty chill guy to allow the likeness of his nose to be reproduced in such a manner. I, I even heard a rumor that he was watching himself in Pirates of the Caribbean while they were taking a cast of his nose. So just there's a lot happening, only $5. I will say this, though. If you've got an extra five bucks, you can support us on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Welcome. For the record, this was not my idea. Dumbo works alone. So do I. Bonjour, Millie. Joe. And you. Hmm, charming. Well, maybe didn't recognize you without the makeup. So I got to teach you to fly? I know how to fly. Ever since I was a child. They taught Dumbo to fly, no? So I don't need your expertise. All right. We're back with the second half of our show. And Wade, I'm really glad that you were able to have that sit down with Cutter and Craig and talk to them about the book they did with Robert. That's just, it's always nice to get a chance to to boost other people's work and to have such a, a great conversation to put on the show. We should be thanking them. <laughs> <laughs> they helped lead into this Dumbo review. They're like our openers, uh, the band that opens and then goes to the Dumbo review. So I really appreciated all of that. And I almost wish I could get all of them on this segment to talk about Dumbo because we would inevitably have a really great conversation. Yeah, as it is, though, they're going to have to be the opening band, and then you and I come out and we're like the clowns in the clown car. So we'll just roll with it. Yeah, yeah, no. Dumbo is, of course, the latest in Disney's series of live-action remakes of its own films. This one is familiar to most people as the story of a baby elephant with enormous ears and miraculous aerodynamic abilities. Tim Burton's version retains the premise and overall structure. Dumbo is born into the circus, is separated from his mother, and struggles to find his place within a world interested mostly in mocking him. But Burton intensifies the focus on the human characters that, in the animated original, were on the periphery. Wade, it's been nearly a decade since the last time Burton tried his hand at remaking one of the films in Disney's storied back catalog, with 2010's Alice in Wonderland being a huge success, at least in the financial department. Dumbo is an altogether more modest picture, it seems pretty clear, at least as far as Disney blockbusters go. The question is... Does that comparative restraint result in a stronger film, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I, if I'm, if I'm being completely honest, I fell asleep during Alice in Wonderland, so I can't comment on the movie as a whole, just on the first half. I, I think visually the restraint aids him. A better movie in his filmography that you could probably compare or maybe look at alongside Dumbo is Big Fish. It's a it's a film that I like, and 
that is a very fantastic movie, and I use fantastic in its literal definition. There, visually, uh, there are some whimsical elements as well as how the story works, how that plays out with the characters. It is not an earthy film. It is, it's fantastic. With Dumbo, if you go back to the cartoon, the animated picture, you get a film with a, a talking mouse, a film where an elephant flies. There's that great sequence at the very beginning where the locomotive is, is a living and breathing character a being that goes along to the song fantastically. Dumbo gets drunk at one point. There's there there's there's a cartoonish quality to the animated feature. I wasn't necessarily looking forward to this film, but I was hoping that Burton would take some of those big fish sensibilities, that flair for the fantastic and include that in his movie, and I think he does that every once in a while visually. But in terms of the story, it's it's a real downgrade to the animated picture. There are no talking mice. There's not a locomotive that feels like a living, breathing character. The most fantastic part of the picture is there is an elephant that, that flies. And I think by scrubbing all the fantasy from this movie, he created something that ultimately is it's pretty bland. I wouldn't say this is a bad film, but it's it might be worse. It's it it's bland. There are a couple of moments where we tap into the quote-unquote Disney magic, but overall I I found myself just wanting to watch the animated picture again because of the life within that film compared to this one. Uh you know, I'm of two minds about this film because on the on the one hand, I'm not sure how well it would have worked for Burton to try to ape the more fantastical feel of the animated original. I'm just not sure that the animated aesthetic, the the way that it has these moments of like a, an actually literally living train and talking animals, I don't think that those would necessarily have translated well into the live action remake template that Burton is working with here. On the other hand, I'm I'm not sure that I find the more grounded way that Burton is working with this material to work all that well either. It seems almost as if it's it's kind of not sure how far it can go in one direction without pulling apart the at the seams, but the place where it finds itself seems like it's not going quite far enough. It's just, it seems like it's not really sure what it wants to be. And part of that can also be seen in the fact that watching this film, I, I, you know, I'm not a huge, necessarily a huge fan of the animated original. I don't have a problem with it, but it's not one of these sacrosanct Disney treasures on the level of say Mary Poppins where, or, or even something like the beauty and the beast where it's just inarguably a masterpiece and everybody knows it and loves it. Dumbo's sort of maybe not quite at that level. So I'm not really coming into this film harboring a huge affection for the original, but watching this one, it seemed as if it didn't know who the main character was. In the in the original, you know, Dumbo is pretty obviously the protagonist, even though he's not 
a speaking part. He's the f focus of the film, and the humans are kind of, they're there, but they're not really richly characterized. They're not really meant to be. In this film, Burton tries to find a story that works better in the live-action remake template by beefing up the human parts. So we have Colin Farrell playing a father recently returned from World War I, being reunited with his children, finding that, of course, their mom has died because this is a Disney picture. <laughs> and um, them sort of almost trying to find their way in the world at the same time that Dumbo is trying to find his way in the world. And so their journeys, at least ostensibly speaking, are are in parallel. They're kind of trying to move along the same track. But in practice, which is in, in theory at least, that's a solid idea for the film. In practice, though, it kind of feels as if Burton really wants this to be a movie about his human characters but there's this cute CGI elephant that keeps kind of getting in the way because this is titled Dumbo, not the Colin Farrell Sad Family Hour. So we're kind of trying to figure out, you know, who is our focus here. And the film never really finds that. And as a result, at least to me, it kind of felt a little scattershot. It felt unmemorable because there's not really anything solid to, to grab onto with the different stories and strands it's trying to weave together. Yeah, and there are some problematic elements within the animated feature. Racially, they're problematic elements. But what the animated movie does have going for it is that it's singular in focus. And even looking at the history of this film, you have Bambi that's in pre-production and production for years and years and years, and then... The story of Dumbo uh, just kind of comes out of nowhere, and they fast-track it, and they get the movie out. It's a brisk 60 minutes, and there's, there is this melancholy nature to the animated picture. But it's, it is about, it, it's about separation and sadness, but it's also about fitting in and being left out. And it's funny, too, how it ends with Dumbo in the circus and him being cool and everything's great, which is kind of a product, I guess, of its times. In this movie, the the story is longer. So we reached the point at about, at about 40 minutes, we reached the point where the animated movie ends and it essentially becomes a sequel of sorts. So we've get, we get more storyline. And there are more themes. There is this theme of, of being different than others. The young daughter, she doesn't want to be a performer in the circus. She wants to use her mind. And then, of course, Dumbo has these, these large ears. And Colin Farrell's character has lost an arm in the war. People who are different, as well as people in the circus who are different, who kind of band together and become a family. At the same time, this is a film about grief. This is also a film about greed. And Michael Keaton's character comes in and he he takes that mantle upon himself. He takes that theme upon himself. And because the movie is so scattered, because its story is much wider, and because it's hitting at all these themes, it only touches on them in, in really kind of a surface level. And I found myself not necessarily feeling for these characters in terms of their loss. 
not necessarily feeling connected with them in terms of being left out and feeling like the greed angle was 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 pretty simple and pretty pretty I guess black and white is fine you get that with Disney but it we don't get much more than hey this person is trying to exploit other people and that's bad and that's the end and so because there is no singular focus and as you mentioned Kevin because the movie doesn't know where to go and with the main character and who that main character is it just feels a bit aimless and that contributes to its just mediocre style. You know, I'm I'm glad that you brought up style here because here's another thing where I feel as if this film is chafing under a certain kind of of demands upon it at least from a a visual standpoint that make it end up feeling like less than the sum of its parts. So individually, I really like the production design in this film. At least overall, I think that Burton has fallen on the right side of his stylistic uh, signatures. There are times when I'm watching a a Burton film where I I find myself wishing he would maybe dial it back a little bit, you know, maybe have a few fewer spirals showing up on on the set. Maybe the costuming (laughs) can be a little bit less... Burton-y. Um, but in this one, I think he does find a good balance, and some aspects of the production design are genuinely quite fun. I like a lot how Michael Keaton's villain, who is basically this, this uh, I guess, the corrective to the greatest showman's version of P.T. Barnum, whereas that was you know Hugh Jackman being twinkly. This one, he's like this this evil P.T. Barnum who mm-hmm. has his uh, office literally in something that looks like the Death Star hovering above his amusement park. That's a really fun bit of of production design, and it tells us basically everything we need to know about this guy before we even hear a word out of his mouth. So that's a lot of fun. And I like how there are visual contrasts given between the circus of Michael Keaton, evil circus man, and Danny DeVito, uh, basically good circus man. That's I, I enjoy the contrast there, and I think Burton finds the right notes in keeping things simple and clear while also having something of interest for, for us to, to hold on to. Um, but I do think that there are other parts where this film feels like it doesn't, it, it almost either wants to be full on gritty Burton style or it wants to be even more fantastical than it's quite been permitted to be. I'm thinking mostly here of Dumbo himself. And I, there's something about the anthropomorphic qualities being foisted on a CGI character that's sharing screen space with live action flesh and blood human beings that feels a little bit uncanny valley to me. I did not like Dumbo very much because he he doesn't seem like he's cartoony enough to kind of be able to justify these human expressions that come over his face and yet he's not allowed to be just an elephant. You know, he's trying to be a character in his own right and i don't think that really works it it doesn't work there are a couple of flying scenes that touch on the magical elements within the story 
but it is hard to get past his design. And Uncanny Valley works really well. I actually just learned what that meant two days ago. So I'm on track with you, Kevin, when you say yeah, that. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there were a couple scenes, for instance, when we get the elephant, the elephants that are made out of the bubbles. And so it's this nice... This nice riff on Dumbo getting drunk in the animated cartoon. Of course, you're not going to be able to do that today. Visually, those those look imaginative. And it feels fantastical in that moment. And I, I appreciated that scene. Looking at the themes again, I was a little confused at this movie. And well, even interested. So it caught my attention because we do get Michael Keaton's character. He takes the original circus and he brings them to his amusement park. And it's called Dreamland, which seems to connect to Fantasyland, which is in the Magic Kingdom or Disneyland. There's a section of the park that seems to reference Tomorrowland, which is in both of those parks. There's a castle in this park. There's also what feels like a reference to Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress that's in the Magic Kingdom, this tomorrow or future world. And yet, all of that's built on greed. And then at one point, Keaton's character yells, nothing is impossible. And it presents a figure who pursues advancement and innovation and in in many ways becomes the lord or the god of his creation he creates a world uh, himself where he's completely in charge of every aspect of it and so there almost seems to be this connection to disney world to the disney corporation to walt disney himself but it's also a walt disney film i found that intriguing i don't really know what to make of it at the end too one character, DeVito's character, he says, anything is possible. So the film, I feel like it could have set itself up to look at moving forward, that word I used earlier, innovation, while not treating individuals like cogs in a machine, like they're expendable. I would have liked to dig in a little bit deeper, but it just, it kind of made me pause and say, huh, like, is a Disney film dunking on Disney? I'm I'm really not sure, but it's intriguing uh, to say the least. I, I mean, I think part of the reason why it's a little bit hard to get a handle on exactly what's what's going on there is that it's not really clear what the what the implied contrast is between Devito's Medici and uh keaton's vanderveer right like they're they're kind of the same in a lot of ways they're they're looking to make a buck they're both circus masters they both arguably exploit the uh the the people and animals under their care and yet keaton is obviously presented as the bad guy and devito is if not the good guy he's at least kind of morally neutral right and the nature of the way the script sets them up to be foils for each other and then never really carries that through, I think is is a thematic problem for this film. Not necessarily because I disagree with what it's saying. In fact, I actually would like to see maybe a critique of that sort of 
you know, anything is possible. Dreams can come true. Mm -hmm. All you need is a benevolent corporate overlord. Like that's something that I would like to see a movie, especially a Disney movie, explore. I just don't think that this particular movie is interested in exploring it far enough with everything else that's going on thematically. And I think, too, if we're talking about a lazy remake or adaptation, whichever this could be categorized, I think this fits the mold in many ways. The humor is is really not that funny. And the characters make very confusing decisions. Uh, there's one point where a group of people see Dumbo fly uh, for, I don't know, a minute. And then he, he, he breaks out of the tent and all the people are angry and they want their money back. And you're, <laughs> you, just saw, you just saw an elephant fly, uh, as well as Michael Keaton's character and some of the decisions that he makes and... Alan Arkin plays a banker, and it's it's kind of confusing. And I, <laughs> who I, knows why Alan Arkin <laughs> is in this movie? I don't know. I mean, maybe he wants to make an independent film, and he he needs to make a little cash on the side. I don't know. But all of that just feels half-hearted. And I guess it gets back to where I am. It may, is it bad in some ways? Yes, but just it's very it's very it's very bland. It, it is really bland i came home after after seeing this film uh a day before recording this and i could almost feel the the movie leaking out of my brain (laughs) there's there's not a whole lot of stuff in this movie to really stick to your ribs you it's you you're meant to go to see it and enjoy it and then kind of go home and that's that's really all it's meant to do. It's almost as if you're buying a ticket to one of Vanderveer's attractions, and then you leave the park and you feel like you've gotten your 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 nickels worth or whatever. Which, in some ways, might me I don't know. Maybe Dumbo is a critique of the you know of the Disney mode of doing things. Although it would be interesting that in in this particular analogy, Disney is the Vanderveer character. Mm-hmm. No, it, it it definitely is interesting. And here here's what we have to look forward to, Kevin. We have Aladdin coming out this year. We have The Lion King coming out this year. So we'll see how this conversation runs over into those films. Listeners, that's our review of Dumbo. If you've seen the film, maybe you agree with us, maybe you don't agree with us. You can tweet us. We'd love to hear your thoughts at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We've reached the part of the show where we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. Kevin, you're up first today. What would you like to recommend to the seeing and believing world? Well, we were talking about a film that has a slightly off-putting human-animal hybrid in Dumbo. Um, so that made me think of a film that Tim Burton actually awarded the Palme d'Or when he was the head of the jury mm. at the Cannes Film Festival in 2010, and that would be Uncle Boon Me, Who Can Recall His Past Lives, mm. directed by Apichatpung Werasetakun. And I'm probably mispronouncing that, but that's kind of par for the course with this director. We can call him Joe, because that's what he often invites people to call mm. him himself. Uncle Boon Me is a very strange picture and i like it a lot 
It makes me think of the way Abbas Kiarostami said that he liked movies that had that encouraged its audiences to fall asleep in the theater too. Sort of this this dreamlike, free floating experience that carries you along and puts you into almost a reverie state. And if there's a movie that does that better than Uncle Boon Me, it's a rare movie. Not very many movies do it the way this movie does. The basic premise is uh, about the character Uncle Boon Me, who is dying of kidney failure and decides to basically go home and sort of end his life in his own home in a rural, rural area that is familiar and dear to him. He is visited by the ghost of his wife and the spirit of his son who is uh basically a monkey spirit he he shows up and he's a monkey with glowing red eyes and the only reaction he really gets is from the ghost of his his dead mother who says where did you get so hairy (laughs) that's the sort of movie this is where you know the the ghost of a deceased uh son shows up in monkey form with glowing red eyes and the question of when exactly he became when exactly he got that much hair that's the question on everyone's mind this is the sort of movie that kind of flows between these very odd vignettes and blends them all together into something that feels very much like a dream itself and by the end of the film there's just this wonderful I don't know if what you would call it a dissolve edit, maybe, where a character almost has an out-of-body experience on camera as we watch. And it's just a really remarkable film. It's a film that you need to go into being willing to buy into it. But if you do give it that little bit of leeway, you'll have a very singular experience. Yeah, it's one of those movies, too, that it, when I finished watching it, I thought to myself, there's something great really going on here. I don't quite understand everything because my culture is distant from this culture. But Joe uh, does a fantastic job of putting together a story of feeling emotions that I think resonate across all of cultures, even if we don't get everything in the movie. And and that's a, that's a good pick, Kevin. So I want to move on to my pick. And I was thinking about some sort of connection to Dumbo. And I just saw a movie a couple days ago, and it's about the pursuit of riches. So we could compare it to Michael Keaton's character in Dumbo, and that's the 1954 film Vera Cruz, directed by Robert Aldrich. It stars Gary Cooper and Burt Lancaster. They give some great performances. Burt Lancaster in particular is an individual, an American who... Uh, is wanted uh, from the law, and he goes down to Mexico and finds himself in a in the crosshairs of a battle between the rebels and the emperor. And Gary Cooper's character meets up with him. They go on this mission for the emperor, and things start to get dicey. Burt Lancaster is not a good person. Gary Cooper isn't the great per- greatest person but he's <laughs> we could see him coming around just some great western scenes and one of the things i love about westerns as i watch more and more of them is just this patience in classic westerns to just show us the scenery 
and let the scenery do the talking to tell the stories. And we get some places that are just incredible and breathtaking and other places that seem very, very dangerous and all that kind of melds into this story. And in, especially here at Veracruz, this film was filmed entirely in Mexico and we get some some great shots and some good battles. There are some scenes where just an incredible amount of extras are used in these shots. And you know, if the movie were made now, many of those would be CGI. So it's nice to see that physicality, and uh, it's a good film. So I encourage people to check it out. 1954, Vera Cruz. Mm, that's that's a really good pick. I have not... I, I've got to confess, I don't think I've even heard of this film. So that makes me really excited to to check it out. Aldrich is one of those directors that I've heard a lot of good things about, especially recently, but have not really dug deep into his filmography at all. So I'm looking forward to maybe rectifying that and checking him out a little bit more. Yeah, it's a good film, and it's it's streaming on uh, Amazon Prime right now, so you can you can check that mm. out. And I'm glad I had a chance to to watch it the other day. I was I was very impressed, listeners. We want to thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters in ChristandPopCulture.com. We had a great time talking about Dumbo, talking to our guests, and we want to continue doing that. Thank you, all the people who support us. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. Next week, we're back, Kevin, with Shazam. Shazam. Maybe we could have kid versions of ourselves do the <laughs> review. I don't I don't know. <laughs> how do you? Well, how do you know that I am not currently the kid version of myself? You know, maybe the adult Kevin that you know is just what happens when the kid Kevin utters a magic word and turns on his podcasting. Mic. <laughs> hey, I I'm open to any of those possibilities. Uh, the fantastic <laughs> is open this week. Well, I am Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, listeners, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz. Used under Creative Commons License 3.0.